Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Kara Daggett, a professor of political science at Virginia Tech. We're here to talk about her new book, The Birth of Energy, Fossil Fuels, Thermodynamics, and the Politics of Work, which was recently published by Duke University Press. Kara, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. So the book is really fascinating, and it's a it's a totally different perspective on energy politics than uh, than anything I've seen before. So it was really eye opening and really interesting to read. Um, but just to, you know, kind of to get us started, what what drew you to this subject? Did you have a, have you had a long standing interest in in energy or history? How did how did this project come together for you? Uh, no, I did not have a long standing interest in energy. Interestingly, um, I do have. A background in science. I was a biochemistry major um, before moving into the social sciences and um, really an interest in social justice and global politics. And the book started because I was actually thinking a lot about what carbon meant and how prominent it had become because for, you know, a biochemist or a scientist, carbon is life. It's right. all, it means all kinds of things. But in politics, it was like a big bad villain. And I was really interested in the history of that, like when, when and how did carbon um, come to mean that? And in asking that question, I sort of noticed, oh, energy too is like that, where hmm. it's this big word and concept, even beyond science, um, it's a new age mm-hmm. word or feeling, it's a poet, poet's word. Um, but in politics, it means fuel. It's got a very specific, like when you say energy politics, you know, you're not talking about, um, about like gravity. Right. <laughs> Um, so I, I really wanted to know how that came to be. When did energy start meaning fuel? And, Mm -hmm. um, and I really didn't know where that question was going to take me, which is always exciting when you do any kind of historical project. Yeah, it's, um, I, I bet it was an interesting ride. I mean, one of the one of the the things that just struck me in reading the book at some point was uh, it, it recalled a, a memory when I was a, in high school physics, actually, and <laughs> um, and you know we had a little section in thermodynamics, and at some point the 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 idea of work, the concept of work as it's used in that context, came up, and I just thought that was the funniest thing at the time that the word work like was in physics because work just seemed like such a, you know, a human endeavor, you know, something that you do in your, in your life or whatever has all this, you know, I wouldn't have said social meaning at the time. It's just something that people do, not something that, that atoms or molecules do. And so I just found that so peculiar and interesting that the word work was, um, was to be found in physics. And, um, Anyway, I mean, I, I, it's, it sounds like it, it, even though the the book talks quite a bit about work and and the you know the social meaning of that and how it intersects with um, uh, with the with the concept of work in, in thermodynamics, it sounds like that was you, you kind of came to that in your exploration of this other um, ideas around carbon and energy. Yes, absolutely. I didn't. Um know when I started that it would be a book about work. Um, But like you said, once I started looking really with looking at the history of science, um, even though like you, I had my memories of high school and college physics, I didn't really have a strong history of science background at, at that time. And so I never learned like I never learned the history of, of the science of energy. And, um, and so I was a little surprised to see how recent energy is Mm -hmm. in terms of Mm -hmm. physics and also that it was very much a fossil fuel knowledge in the sense that we get 
the laws of thermodynamics come out of people who are interested in figuring out steam engines, coal, mm-hmm. coal-fired engines in the 19th century. And as part of that, we get um, the emergence of the field of engineering and and definitions of terms like work very much corresponding to this new idea of energy. So um, that's exciting because here we have a problem of energy, which is really connected to industrialization. And then we have a history that tells us that um, this knowledge we have came out of industrial industrialization. And so it doesn't, sometimes when I teach students about um, thinking about the politics of science and technology, you know, we're so, um, we're so told in popular culture that science is kind of a fact and to question it is mm-hmm. to say it's like, it's either true or not, it's black and white. And so it's not to say, to say there's a history there and there's a set of interests is not to say that um, these things aren't true or useful in certain contexts, but more to notice that we come to this knowledge and the way we frame it and the stories we tell about it and the metaphors and terms that we use do have all, like you said, these human meanings and values that then it becomes a murky terrain because um, all science uses metaphor and language to try to mm-hmm. explain itself. And so when we start talking about work then, or power, power is another term <laughs> right. um, that has a definition um, in science, but also clearly, actually, I don't think it has a very good definition ever on purpose in, in politics. So um it's important to think about what these words mean and whether we bring what values get brought into the discussion. And, and then if we think, oh, this is just a matter of science and technology, therefore there are no values, mm. we're missing um, that there are lots of ways of thinking about energy that get left out of the picture. Mm. We're kind of importing these values sub Rosa without, without, without thinking about them. Um, so this is a bit of a, a sidetrack, and as I want to get back to the to the to the core arguments of the book in a second, but this just puts me in mind of um, the signs that one will see around town that will say say the phrase "science is real," um, along with other things, and um, you know, and I. I you know, my politics are I typically agree with most of the statements that are on those things. Yeah. <laughs> and but but I but I often will cringe a little bit at the science is real stuff. I I, I wonder what 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 is, what is your take on this? Is, is it okay in some context? Because obviously people use it to mean like, hey, pay attention to public health scientists who tell you to wear a mask or get vaccinated. But at the same time, the, I, you know, it's a little uncomfortable if you if you have a, a view that science is embedded in social processes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, science is real, but also, right. But, uh, I think the answer is that it's very, um, it's murky and contextual, meaning that the way we as humans, um, come to knowledge or find things out is a social process and it requires institutions and authority and respect for those institutions that make meaning in certain cultural contexts. And again, that's not to say um, that anything you say, that all truth is relative and there's no way of, of understanding what which truth claims might have more weight. It's just to say, I think it's a problem when um, we fall into, again, this black and white way of thinking about it, like there's just truth and not truth, because, um, and, and I think we'll probably get to this in the book, I'm really interested in how capitalism and um, these political economic processes are part of science. And... What that means is that um, these institutions do have political interests, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that um, they're necessarily true or false. 
But it means that when we don't acknowledge socially what's happening in terms of um, who's, who's funding certain projects and which interests are being valued over others, then I think we lose a lot of that trust. We lose some public trust because there's a sense, you know, for example, with pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. they're not always doing things for the public good. And so... Um, I don't think there's room in that, in a black and white conversation to acknowledge that there might be really good reasons for a lack of public trust in pharmaceutical companies. And that doesn't mean that they can't also make a vaccine that is life-saving and important. Hmm. But, um, you know, I, I live in Appalachia, not too far from you. And Mm -hmm. I've talked to, um, someone who's from this area, from a small town in this area who was saying, you know, I, a lot of people around me are very suspicious about the vaccine. And these are the same people who have been affected by the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. and have watched Mm -hmm. drug companies purposefully, um, you know, seek out to make people addicted in their communities and watch the government in some cases turn a blind eye to that and allow it. And so this is the same community then where, you know, to understand that history and all the things that are going on there is a much bigger and more complicated story. And so I I really cringe a bit when it's like, oh, it's just ignorance or, oh, you know, people just need to say science is real because that um, that doesn't get into the harder questions of who's funding, who, you know, the corporate funding of university research. And it's a whole. <laughs> so I would like to do things like increase, you know, public literacy and science. And I want people to believe in climate change and I want people to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do that, we have to think about what how we have institutions that seek truth in a way that earns the trust of the public. Hmm. That yeah, was I mean, a lot. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I've that's great. So a lot it's, about uh, that lately. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's super helpful. And this is, I, I think on a lot of uh, our minds these days, um, you know, the, the orientation of the book is towards thermodynamics. And one of the, I mean, that's, you know, that's at least the a main organizing principle of the book. And, um, you know, again, I had never really, thought about the political context around physics just more generally. Of course, that's actually not really true because you do think about things like the way that the um, military industrial complex, so to speak, uh, you know, gets really interested in physics around, you know, the World War II and um, and the Cold War. And obviously, that's, there's a big story there. But I never really thought of it in the context of, um, you know, thermodynamics. And one of the things that helped me um, kind of an entry point into the into the book for me was um, at some point you make a kind of comparison uh, to evolution and of and then I just kind of clicked and I thought well of course we've thought a lot about evolution as a scientific discipline but also as it interacts with society it just has such clear consequences for you know there was religious debates and you know social darwinism and eugenics and you know all this stuff gets entangled in evolution and it, it was kind of that that clicked that thermodynamics could be something could be akin to that um, you know, maybe at a different scale or in different ways, but that there's this, you know, possibility between what I think of as slippage between scientific concepts and moral political discourse, um, and also, of course, the social political context behind knowledge production and scientific inquiry. So I guess the question that comes out of that is, you know, as you were working through this project, did the uh, the analogy, and then ultimately, you know, you draw together the the ways that thermodynamics and evolution kind of worked, operated in tandem in certain respects, but just broadly this literature and the way that we think about evolution um, as, a, as a kind of cross-trans science society kind of thing, did that affect your thinking about, about thermodynamics and, and in th- the possibility of these kind of trans science society interactions there as well? Yeah, so I um, definitely that's just like like you. I was I hadn't really thought, you know, how could physics um, 
how how might I see its effect? I mean, there was clearly a lot of uh, language that was circulating, mm-hmm. uh, like energy and work that w- had these different meanings, and there were practices in so in particular engineers. I think are another clear way to see. Um, how these concepts travel because the field of engineering in the late 19th century really coalesces and engineers become uh, important managers at mines and factories. So that's another lens. But the one that I was more familiar with was the history of, of science as it, um, fed into empire in the period and in general what um what Michel Foucault has called biopolitics or the way that life is governed in liberal uh modern liberal societies and that is almost predominantly about the life sciences obviously it's it's more easy to see how theory scientific knowledge about life can then be used or be important to politicians and managers who are trying to govern life um everything from counting population to nutrition um to reproductive health uh so on and so forth So there's an enormous literature, not just about the human life sciences, but also ecology, um, thing, you know, life more broadly, even beyond the human, including evolution. Evolution is probably the king of those. Um, and so I started looking and reading some of these, um, some of this literature and noticing that, um, energy or, conceptualizations about work um, and even directly metaphors that are coming from thermodynamics, ideas about entropy, for example, or, or the tendency for energy to dissipate, um, efficiency, which is very tightly connected to energy. Um, but these are, these are really prominent in ecology, in, in a lot of evolutionary thinking, not just scientific, but political. Um, but they don't always say, you know, it's not like, um, people studying or doing experiments that lead to thermodynamics are, are as directly involved as for example, someone studying forestry or, um, Mm -hmm. tropical health. So in a sense, it's a, it's kind of like you have to approach the texts, um, thinking about energy in order to see that a lot of those assumptions are, are, are there. Um, and I think that's a little bit the, um, one of the main points of the book is that energy has this, um, capacious set of meanings around it. It feels like this universal thing. Um, but it does have this really particular history that's connected to um, Northern European industrialization and empire and the, and the interests of those people. So the interest in maximizing work, minimizing waste, more efficiency, and really expanding industrialization and profit-making. So... Um, there's lots of other ways of thinking about energy, even within physics, um, that don't often <laughs> come into our political conversations around mm-hmm. fuel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, there's a paragraph in the book that's kind of, I think, gets at the um, some of the, the, the points that you're making right there. I, I had kind of triple underlined it. Um, oh. <laughs> as something that that I thought kind of encapsulated, it felt for me in any case that it encapsulated a good amount of um, a very interesting stuff. So I thought I'd actually just read it out. Presumably it's a paragraph, so I won't run afoul of any copyright violations. Um, and um, and then maybe we could unpack it a little bit because it's very it's very dense. Um, so okay. is, it, would, is that be okay? Yeah. Yeah. So this is on page one eleven. It's worth clarifying that I'm not arguing that thermodynamics is false 
but rather that the energy work connection cannot claim to be a reflection of the whole truth of energy, much less of the cosmos. This is never more obvious than when compared with the multiple interpretations made possible by the new biological sciences. In other words, thermodynamics does not dis simply describe a pre-existing thing called energy, but rather invents energy as a unit of accounting and work and waste, thereby offering new governance strategies that were particularly useful to Victorian industry. While energy comes to inhabit the same universal realm as matter, what counts as more or less useful forms of energy, or as useful energy transformations, is not given in advance by nature, but is open to political contestation. The valorization of productive waged work as the highest mode of energy transformation represents a happy marriage of physics, Protestant sensibilities, and the European demand for scientific knowledge with which to address the multifaceted crises of labor resistance in the, met the, metropoli the metro <laughs> metropolis, metropolis rather, and the colonies. Okay, so there's a lot in there, but that's why I underlined it because I thought there was, uh, it, was it was quite a bit. And it might be worth unpacking. So, so maybe I'll just turn it over to you to, <laughs> to start doing some of that unpacking because I think it really does encapsulate a lot of a lot of the argument that you make. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, I think yeah. One, so one of the points in that in that paragraph was this idea that energy doesn't exist; it's invented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have this great quote elsewhere from Richard Feynman, who is a, a famous physicist of the 20th century, and he had these lectures at Caltech that are still um, really influential. But And he says, energy isn't a thing. Um, it's not something out there. And, and it's really, energy is a set of mathematical calculations. So what I mean by inventing energy is that um, it's a way of describing um, transformation in the cosmos. And um, a, a, a word that helps to understand these increasingly complicated math equations about what is happening when things change in the cosmos, and frankly, is is still you can get pretty quickly into very weird theoretical physics around energy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, a lot of the most useful ways of thinking about and monitoring energy are make the most sense in a closed system. And that's a system where energy isn't entering and leaving. But there are no known closed systems. So that's just one, one you know, we kind of assume, like, sometimes we sort of mathematically assume a closed system of the Earth. But of course, the Earth is not a closed system. It's that's the whole point. It's getting That'd be sun. bad news. That'd be bad yeah. news if the Earth was a closed system. <laughs> so, um, so what what that's trying to say is there's this vast complexity, and and you know, with math and with with scientific tools, we're trying to understand better what's happening, especially across change. And so, energy becomes the way to name this observation that there's something that we can say that is conserved across change. But the way that we could say energy is conserved, ultimately what that meant is we had is we had to kind of multiply what could what energy was, like all the different forms of energy. So at first the math didn't even really work. There were these kind of ancient conservation laws, this notion that there probably is some sort of conservation working. Um, before there was even really uh, solid experimental evidence for that, because but, like this was, is old school. When you talk about the ancient conservation laws, you right. mean like going back to the the Greeks and the very early philosophers right. thinking about what is the nature of the universe and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think a lot of that sensibility. So one of my favorite stories was that um, you know these scientists of energy in the 19th century, I think still had this, this feeling that conservation must be true because Joule, for example, in the experiments, it, things still didn't add up mm -hmm. satisfactorily, no matter how much he tried to measure them. And partly, you know, now we can say, well, he didn't know about all these other kinds of energy that were getting quote unquote lost. But those stories are interesting because what they tell us is 
um, no matter how hard the math seems and how, you know, physics, how hard physics seems, we still are, these still are um, human invented categories to try to explain something that's very complex. And so, um, again, that term energy and this invention that humans have is really useful and helpful and true in a lot of ways. But it's also um, what I was noticing because it comes about among a certain group of people who are really interested in making steam engines efficient and already have um, a commitment to a certain faith. This is Anglo-Protestantism and already have a commitment to a work ethic because of their culture and already have a set of commercial interests and already have an allegiance to a certain nation with its own Mm -hmm. imperial interests that this observation about energy, um, you know, becomes a way to say, aha, this helps us understand what we already think is valuable, which is hard work and minimizing waste. Mm. But that's not what every culture, for example, even if we just think about humans, it's not what every human culture has thought about change and has thought about this thing that we might call energy or, and it's certainly not what every culture has thought about work. And so what happens then is um, the science lends this kind of justification or natural truth to the pursuit of work, which is a certain culture. And it could like, there's nothing about the world that says, this is the right way to treat energy, fuel, or to do work. Um, But I think in public conversations about energy, there's this underlying um, way, there's a way that physics gives a kind of stamp to what is ultimately a Western culture of work. So maybe we could just to make this somewhat more concrete, um, is to think of some specific examples um, maybe that, that you that you come across in, in the book uh, where, you know, some of the concepts here, and I think that, you know, there's, for me anyway, to my mind, there's four that strike me as having this, I'm going to call it a slippage. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that's the right word, between the kind of the, the scientific and the social, assuming we could even disentangle those two things. Um, but in any case, you know, if we think of the concept of work in physics versus work as a broader social, you know, uh, thing that we talk about and 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 have politics about. Um, so there's work, there's waste that you've mentioned, there's efficiency, and then there's the way the concept of energy, um, which again sounds like a, you know, a, to be energetic. That is a compliment, right? When uh, when Donald Trump said that. Uh, Jeb Bush was low energy, right? That was mm-hmm. a that was an insult, right? And he's now now maybe we can even take that one because it's kind of funny. Is <laughs> you, is there anything about thermodynamics in there, right? So you could say, well, wait, he's is, is he recruiting some of these some something that comes with a his, with historical leverage or historical meaning when he when he calls Jeb Bush low energy or um, you know, can we just say, ah, that's divorce. It's like, that's too tenuous of a connection to say that somehow he's, re- he's drawing from the same well as these, you know, um, Scottish, uh, Presbyterian steam engineers, uh, and that, you know, these are just kind of unrelated to each other. Um, it's, I think it's both, I think, and the way you said it at the end, I think is, is the best way to say it, which is not that 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 Trump statement is, you know, coming from thermodynamics, but that Trump statement and thermodi- the the uh, 19th century engineers were drawing from a similar well. And because that 19th century engineering then became so dominant, um, if there, I, I do think those are related uh, in the broader sense of privileging dynamism and sort of, um, and and really, I mean, the kind of pro-work sentiment, which is not just on the right in American politics, um, is certainly connected to 
um, thermodynamics, but also to fossil fuels. So I, I wrote a different article about the connection on the far right between masculinity, fossil mm. fuels, and authoritarianism. And so um, mm. in particular, I do think there is a connection between this notion of virility mm-hmm. and um, what it means to be a man and a certain culture of work that is all very tightly connected to fossil fuels. And it, I think that's helpful in understanding this support of fossil fuels, even when it might not make economic sense for certain people, um, uh, you know, because we're we're prone to read it only from an economic perspective. And I think that <laughs> that is centrally important to understanding the trillions of dollars at stake in keeping in the fossil fuel industry. But there's this broader public support for um, fossil fuels and fossil fuel lifestyles that needs to be explained in a in a way that goes beyond just kind of economic rationality. Yeah, there's again, there's like so many different ways to 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 go w- with this conversation. Um, but I'll give you another example yeah, if you yeah, if you yeah, that, that'd be asking great. for specifics. Um, yep. And this one is more among proponents of green transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 19th century, I came across this description of a waterfall as wasteful, like when the waterfall yeah. is going over. And not being captured and put to work by human ingenuity, there's something wasteful about that. So that's an example. But I see a lot of that language, especially in um, describing deserts and particularly in North Africa, like around Mm -hmm. development of solar farms, Mm -hmm. as kind of these places on Earth that are receiving the sunshine and it's kind of otherwise going to quote unquote waste Mm -hmm. because all this energy that could be captured and is just falling uselessly. So there's this tendency there to think about energy as as this project for humans that we need to capture as much as possible and put it to work. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. It's a great that's a great example. And again, kind of the idea being that they're drawing from the same well here. That you know Donald Trump refers to Jeb Bush as low energy. Um, you know, and the green folk, the green tech folks are talking about, um, you know, photons falling on the desert and not being captured by photovoltaic cells as as waste. And this is, I think, take part of your project is that this, these are in, inter, deeply interconnected discourses that have a, a, a long uh, history at the intersection of of society and science. Right. Yep. So. Um, I I have some questions for you about the interaction of the concept of of work in the and some of these concepts in general in in your study and something that I'm interested in which is which is economics and the way that economics is used to think about environmental uh, law and policy and and part I take from I think part of the argument from the book is that um you know the science of thermodynamics and and some of this discourse is very influential in um, structuring you know the the growth of neoclassical economics and you know, some of the, the models that are used and if, and we get statistics out of um, you know some of this, this engineering and and thinking about things like you know temperature as a way of of um, uh, as a macroscopic phenomenon that describes um, lots of um, microscopic behavior that we can't keep track of. And we can yeah. think about, about, you know, uh, similar things happening in the economy where we think about, you know, macroeconomic variables like interest rates representing, you know, actually the aggregation or the consequence of lots of individual human decision-making. And I think there's some interesting mapping there, um, but also some ways that there's differences that might be, I think I would be interested in exploring with you. So one is I just, if there was anything you wanted to say right up front about the way that, you know, the, this discourse around thermodynamics and, and the discourses that it's, uh, that, that it facilitated then interacted with the field of economics. Um, yeah. So I, I really was, uh, I learned a lot from, 
a scholar named Philip Murawski. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but um, he wrote this wonderful book about, about the science of energy as a major precursor or foundation of knowledge for um, for neoclassical economics. And so that that is what I drew heavily upon myself in thinking about it. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a chance in the book to kind of take that history forward into the 20th century, but things do change with the, the rise of systems theory, the um, understanding of information as, as in relation to energy. But, so you can see a continuing way that there's a relationship between how we think about systems and, and um, energy and how it flows through systems and how we think about economics. Um, yeah. So the, the, the things that were, that, that struck me as the, where there was a, a mapping that was just kind of screaming out is, you know, these ideas again about energy, waste and work, which just, we have in both fields, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> um, there's just all, all those things exist. We have, we have, you know, work in, work in economics, obviously the concepts of efficiency, maximization, um, Waste is not maybe so much of a formal concept in economics, but I do think that it is very um, an important um, kind of background norm um, that that helps justify efficiency as a right. as a concept. Like that's what we like about efficiency is that it avoids waste. I do think there's an interesting um, distinction that I would be in, that I w- would like to hear your thoughts on, which is which is work <laughs> actually. So in a standard, I'll just say, welfare economic framework, which is you know the, the kind of the normative side of economics. Work is usually thought of as disutility, right? It's a, in, in some sense, it's a bad thing. People have a choice between labor and leisure. People would prefer to choose leisure, but you know they can choose labor, but we. We have to compensate them. The reason that people choose labor is that we have to compensate them. So the reason we have to compensate people is because they would prefer to do leisure rather than labor. And so in a kind of very stripped down and basic economic model, we just think of labor as a kind of a necessary evil, something to actually be minimized, other mm-hmm. things being equal. And uh, there are critics of that view that argue um, you know, that it doesn't capture everything about work that is valuable. Actually, that would be the main, the main line of criticism would be that work serves a social function, that uh, people get psychological value from working. Um, they socialize with uh, people they might not otherwise socialize with. You know, there's a whole kind of theory about, as you, you know, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with much of it, just about the, the value of work. Um, and that it, that is in tension with the way that economic models treat work. Um, and I'm just curious about what what your thoughts are on that. Do you think that the economists are are onto something, or it, it, what? It's because on the other hand, in the in the thermodynamic context, we think of work as valorized and a great thing. Or I mean, not in thermodynamics strictly, but in the kind of discourses around it that are normative, work is good, and we want to maximize work. Um, mm. That's how we minimize waste. Whereas in like again, in a fairly stripped down basic economic model is you would want to minimize work, other things being equal. Um, it's mm. consumption that you want to maximize, actually, um, mm. which is why economists like things like technological change, because it reduces the amount of human labor that's needed for a given amount of consumption. Mm. Um, yeah, so in any case, I'm curious if you have any uh, any thoughts on this. Um, I, have a lot, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> I, that is really interesting, though, this like tension within economics between is we're good or not. Um, and, you know, one of the puzzles socially is why even var- like people who ha- are wealthy and could mm-hmm. afford to or have the choice to um, historically over the last several decades in the U.S. are working more and more and more and more. Yeah. Um, so, but this underlying question, you know, I think what you laid out as as uh, a welfare economic view is still very historically situated in a mm-hmm. wage labor modern capitalist 
system of um, where work means selling your labor as a commodity to someone. I, I think um, that's right. Just uh, the only <laughs> little interjection that I would offer there is I think that they would, that's probably the, that's the standard and that's the, that's the paradigm. You know, I think that they would accept, I mean, a, a fair welfare economist would, would gladly say, oh yeah, no, like if you work around the house and you, bu- you, you build a shed in your backyard, that's absolutely work and you, you enjoy the consumption value for it, even if you don't receive a wage. Yeah, I yeah, but we're still within we're kind of trying to understand how humans think about work within mm-hmm. a wage labor system, whether they're being whether they're earning a wage or not. Um we're still in a certain time and place of how we think about human activity and how we organize it. And so um I think it one of the um one of the books I draw on in the conclusion when I think about anti-work movements is, is really defining work that way or as, as, um, as a part of a wage labor system, whether it's earning a wage or not. Mm-hmm. And saying that um, we can think about purposeful activity um, in a broader sense as not being bad or something we always want to avoid but maybe one of the I'm trying to think of what one of the I think one of the key differences there is the notion of utility mm-hmm. um, because you could have purposeful activity purposeful is different than useful um, and so when we think about what's the meaning of, of the energy that we expend in the day um, I think the question of utility is connected to our our contemporary system that that um, things that are useful are better, or that we think about utility as as good. Um, and I, I think the other thing I would say that differentiates our current way of organizing work um, around wage labor from. Uh, the many, I mean, frankly, humans have lived in different systems for the bulk of our species history. So this is a relatively novel way of organizing activity mm-hmm. is that activity in other political economic systems is very much um, embedded in social relations. And then it becomes hard to think about something in terms of is it good or bad or something an individual wants because whether I perform a certain activity that I might enjoy or not or feel neutral about um, it might be so um, so much a part of of other kinship networks and community networks and there are things that I might um gain from that, not just in a pure, like, uh, I'm giving something in exchange for something, but also in terms of affect and emotion and care and, um, feelings of dignity and reputation. So it's hard, I guess, in other words, when I hear (laughs) work defined in a certain way like that, it's really hard for me to not think about it historically and, and understand that that's, there's just other ways of of organizing activity among humans towards not just survival but flourishing beyond the concept of work yeah so in a sense what's the you know we have this word <laughs> work that you know has all of these different social meanings and even scientific meanings and so in the field of economics work you know there's the analogy at least to to waged earning to waged work paid work um but again it's it's a it's from a from a normative perspective at least the idea would be to try to minimize it <laughs> that it's a that it's that it's a bad thing that it's disutility that you need to be compensated for in the the kind of uh, work ethic that you describe that has you, links to 
scientific inquiry around thermodynamics, but also obviously deep cultural resonance and links. Work is something to be maximized at some level that the way we avoid waste is to go out and put everybody to, to, to productive use. And then, and those are both historically contingent, of course. And then there are other ways that's, is, I take part of your, what you were saying is that, you know, work the, the the these concepts you know we could say describe are kind of contingent ways of describing something else which is purposeful activity or <laughs> uh stuff people do i guess life right? that, yeah <laughs> yeah life in a way like, and that we, we could just talk about it entirely different ways um than that and maybe there's something there's something bad about either way of thinking about work perhaps from a work ethic way or from a work um, work is disutility way in, in economics, but they're certainly incomplete. And um, and we can think about the things that people do. Um, now, I guess maybe a, the question, sorry, that was a little bit rambling, but the question that would come out of that is, does it provide a useful lens to think about our society then, right? So, so it's certainly yeah. true that the way we think about work is socially contingent. I mean, would, what else would it possibly, <laughs> how could it, what else could it possibly be, right? But um, and you know, these, you know, these scientific and, you know, cultural concepts, we, we, we inherit them and we put them to work, so to speak, um, in our own, in our own way of thinking about our lives. But yeah, you know, what might a social relations theory of, of human activity, um, tell us about the world that we live in that would be illuminating, do you think? Yeah. For example? That's it's such a great question. And I'm so happy to talk to someone like an economist or someone interested in this, these economic questions at work, because this, I, I think um, it's fun to talk about. So thank you for your <laughs> questions. Um, here's what's at stake. I think it, your question illuminated this for me. What's at stake in these? So, so the, the framework you laid out of like the work ethic that maximizes work and then the um, a welfare economy where you want to minimize work. Um, I'll say two things. First, those are, I think those are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Like work is bad, work is good. And the one where you want to minimize work, um, you're still actually maximizing productivism because mm -hmm. as you said, it's a good thing when technology can do the work for us. And so what's at stake is in this current context, um, productivity is a good thing and we always want more of it. And mm -hmm. we always want to be doing more things and expanding that. There's kind of this assumption that that's going to serve well-being, that that's the fountain of, of prosperity. But empirically, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. Mm -hmm. There's in, in specifically in energy consumption terms, there's, I mean, I don't, some of these metrics, I don't know. I'm always suspicious of metrics because it collapses a complex world into an, a number. But for people who have tried to measure things like well-being and happiness and so on and so forth, there's a real plateau in terms of rising energy consumption mm -hmm. and also in terms of income. I'm sure you're familiar with that too, where, Happiness and well-being isn't just this linear relationship that goes up and up. And also, you know, we have the problem of inequality and so on and so forth. So what's at stake in trying to think about work differently is in, I think, in other ways of arranging human activity, it wasn't an automatic common sense assumption that more, more, more productivity is always better. And so there's something about the way we're thinking about work where underneath that is this assumption that um, the way, the path to goodness is more of it. Mm -hmm. Whether tech, whether robots are doing it or, or we are, um, or money is, or bitcoins are, or someone is someone is expanding something somewhere, and that's a good thing. Um, and so that's what's at stake for me. That's why I think it matters. Right, kind of the growth mindset. So it's, you know, there right, are right the growth yeah, mindset. Yeah. 
um, people talk about that and, and feels like ecological economics and, and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's really a religion because there's, there's so little empirical support for why, why that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit mind boggling how, how that belief in faith and growth sort of persists. Yeah, absolutely. And like one of the, um, the, again, this is just, it's so interesting to, to, to chat with you too, because these are just ways of thinking, um, some of the stuff that I just, uh, just have really have not considered before. So like, again, so one of the things that I've sometimes we'll, we'll talk about is speaking of inequality, you know, what's, you know, what is the problem when you have really, really wealthy people and you have other people who don't have very much like in our world, in our society. And um, one of the ways that I've explained this or described it, and it comes out of, you know, out of the literature is that it's wasteful, actually. <laughs> it's bad because it's wasteful. Like when Jeff Bezos, um, you know, uses just, you know, huge amounts of money, money to fly his rocket, you know, th- that's, those are resources that could have produced a lot of happiness in the world that, um, you know, he got a little happiness boost. I'm sure he enjoyed his trip. But um, if you had taken that money and used it to fund schools or, you know, um, mosquito nets or clean water or basic health care or whatever, that the the value in terms of human well-being would have been much increased. And, and, and so that's bad in a sense to live in a society that's so unequal because it's actually leads to a waste of resources. But now I wonder if I'm just recruiting, you know, taking normative <laughs> ideas from that from that same well. I don't know if it's a poisoned well, but um, it's certainly a well that lots of people have drawn on it for some unsavory purposes. So I, I'm curious what you think of that, like recruiting that notion of waste for something. Uh, I mean, is that a, am I not licensed to do that or, or is it, you know, is it troubling or is it okay? I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are. Oh, um, I guess it depends because, you know, when, if we're talking about like, what's the purpose of using that argument when we're talking Mm -hmm. about, we're trying to persuade a student from a certain background in the classroom, you know, maybe I, sometimes we need a lot of different persuade, persuading techniques. Um, so I wouldn't want to say like, you should never use an example in the classroom or, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I have a problem with that. But if we want to think about, I think your question was about, is there some sort of underlying philosophy around waste and utility that that's mm-hmm. dangerously um, skirting, then yes, right. I do think, you know, that. I think there's hmm. there's a few things that that make me uncomfortable with it. One of which is that um, it kind of erases that. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm used to coming at that argument from a perspective of um, unfairness and, and injustice. So, not that. Um, the money should be distributed because it would do better, but that the money that that people are owed things that was, that were taken from them. Um, Mm -hmm. Whether that's in terms of wage theft or theft from nature or dumping into nature for free or, you know, premised upon histories of still global North exploiting global South. um, Jeff Bezos is, has all that wealth in my mind, not, um, that wealth is not earned in a way that I think socially is or justice wise is, um, supportable. And so to me, that's the stronger argument because then you don't have, you don't get into what I call in the book an accounting framework for talking about justice. And I think that's a dangerous one because um, people can always come back and say, well, what about all the charities he gives to? And isn't that great? And well, we gave money to pals over there and it didn't do that much. Or, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about utility, it's not 
it feels like we can then use math and come to these um, easier pictures of the world, but it's ne it's never easy. <laughs> Whereas if you make a justice argument about that, the um, accumulation of that money is not only owed to people, but I like to think of it not only as historical harm, like that money was gained through um, unjust means, but also that those means are the motor for the pro for the continuation of those harms, not just inequity in terms of of wealth, but in terms of climate change. Um, I very much think the way Amazon operates and its constant expansion and accumulation and its um, pursuit of profit above all else is part of the problem that we have to fix in terms of climate change. Um, so, so yeah, I'd be, I mean, I, again, I don't know what's going to be more <laughs> persuade people and more in certain contexts. Um, yeah. Although that might be, not be the full question. I mean, I think that is a, a valid question. Um, you know, something we can ask about kind of rhetoric, right. And persuasiveness. Right. Um, you know, my, my tendency is to think that I at least am not well positioned to answer those kinds of questions. I think I, you know, I'm at a law school. I can think about persuading judges, <laughs> you know, persuading regular folks. That's just other departments, <laughs> you know, that's marketing, that's communications, you know, and I, I, at some level, what I, what I try to do is clean up my own, my own way of talking, you know, so that I'm on good terms, so that I'm on good terms with myself <laughs> is what I, what I shoot for and, and, and to offer good arguments and that kind of thing. And, and maybe it'll be persuasive, maybe not, but, but I really, and, and that's obviously very audience specific, but I think um, that that's a very tricky communications, you know, question of political communications and it's very pragmatic. Um, and I mean, look, the reality is sometimes like really racist messaging is super convincing and, uh, you know, that's just, you know, not a good reason, <laughs> not a sufficient reason to use it. Um, most of the, you know, it's hard to imagine a situation where it would, where it would be justified. Um, and so, um, no matter how persuasive it is. And so it's, um, you know, so I think that's, that's more of the kind of question to ask is, you know, is it, is it like that? Is it kind of a, uh, you're making recourse, you know, maybe it's persuasive, but it's, it's, it's kind of bad. I mean, one of the, I mean, and I, I kind of want to move, I think this takes us naturally to the, um, uh, the kind of final part of your book where you talk about the post-work and the UBI. I think that stuff is really interesting. So I do want to get to that, but I will just maybe note the interesting question of the, the status of justice arguments and welfare are kind of arguments and, and their, you know, the relative persuasiveness is, a, I think, a very interesting question. Both persuasiveness may be at, at a higher order level than just what do people, if you randomly select folks off the street, find persuasive. But, you know, what are better kinds of arguments? I mean, I think that is a absolutely good set of questions. You know, we're, we're not going to resolve today, <laughs> but um, yeah. but that's and a good set of questions. you know, arguments can be like gateway drugs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like... Sometimes if people are trained to think in a certain way and then you can introduce some doubt within that framework, it might, I sometimes I think of teaching as like water on stone where, <laughs> you know, you might not be the person who persuades someone, but you might be the person who shows a new path, a new way. And then that student follows that path and, you know, hopefully learns critical thinking along the way about these kind of common sense feelings. Yeah. Right. What I always, what I will often tell my students is my goal is to confuse them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they never I like know. that. They hate that as a, you know, they're like, they're coming to, they want to learn something. They don't want to leave more confused than they enter. And I say, look, if you leave my class more confused than when you walked in, I'm completely happy. That's a great outcome from my perspective. Yes. Um, Okay, great. So let's maybe we could just spend a couple of minutes. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. But to, um, you know, I think that the modern debate on uh, jobs and the environment and you know how work interacts with 
uh, with environmental protection. You know, this is, you know, we've been talking very abstractly, but these are super, you know, very much on the ground, uh, grist of the mill of political discourse. Yeah. And um, both of us have actually entered this a little bit. So, uh, so in the in the chapter, the last chapter of your book, you you know you talk a little bit about kind of a post work perspective and the value of adopting that for building a political movement that could um, you know really be you know, important um, in addressing climate change and have the kind of energy, so to speak, the political energy that could um, you know uh, overcome the uh, the bad energy politics that that we have right now that are leading to really nasty outcomes. Um, I'll just really quickly, the way that I've intervened on this is there was a big debate about jobs in the environment um, during the Obama administration, where the, every time the Obama administration did anything to um, you know, uh, protect the environment, uh, they would get clobbered for job-killing regulations. I don't know if you remember yep. the job-killing regulations. So uh, the work that I did was basically um, to kind of show and argue that actually environmental regulations have very little uh, net impact on employment. Uh, there's no reason to think that that's actually a, a lever. It was just a rhetorical uh, device that was used. But actually, jo- the environmental regulation and jobs are mostly not linked together. Um, so, the, so we have, you know, we've just intervened in those somewhat different ways. But, um, but I want to hear, and I'm sure our listeners want to hear more about the the post work perspective and and the um, and and what you know what it could usefully add to. The, the, the climate politics these days. Yeah. So like you said, the job killing <laughs> regulations, that is fossil fuel PR. And it is the central and sometimes the only plank in the defense of mm-hmm. fossil fuels and the opposition to environmental regulation. And it's very effective. And it's still like jobs, jobs, jobs. Even Biden's recent climate legislation was called the American jobs plan. Absolutely. Um, So it's, it's so important work like yours to show that um, these arguments about jobs are disconnected from the reality of what's happening to work in America. And so for example, people losing their jobs in the coal industry is not something that president Trump is going to fix. He's not, able to resuscitate the coal industry. And also the coal industry has moved on its own towards other ways of, you know, mountaintop coal removal, other kinds of things that, that require different and less labor. So where I'm going with the move to post work is seeing, and I, I guess this gets back a little bit to the idea of political persuasion and mobilization is that the debate about like, oh, there'll be more green jobs or it won't really hurt mm-hmm. jobs, I don't think gets to the heart of why the job PR is so effective. And it's so effective because it's set within the bigger context of the problem of work since, I mean, how far you want to go back, but at least we can go back to the 70s when the last time that wages really um, kept track with productivity and um, and wealth, you know, that about then is when ever since then, if you account for inflation, wages have remained on average pretty flat. Yeah, for working, certainly for working class For people. working class people. And so yeah. there's this bigger sense in working class America um, or in America more generally, even among my students in, um, you know, this our youngest generation, that the system is broken. And this idea of the American dream and the job and the picket fence in the house is very out of reach for a lot of people. And so this job killing message, whether it's true or not, it resonates because people Mm -hmm. feel like there is a problem with work. And so where I would like to see the environmental movement go is, is one to recognize that the commitment to productivism is part of the problem. And then two, to connect that to the way that our current system of work is hurting people. Because um, in environmental movements, things that connect to people's everyday lives and needs are often the most effective. And I think public health is the best example of that. When when we connect the environment to, pe- to children's asthma and people's health, it 
it resonates and people are very passionate about that and that's understandable. And I think work is another way where people don't need to be told that things are going in the wrong way. And I think there's a lot of um, opportunity there to connect these two things. And so to think about policies that aren't just expanding jobs, but to ask those kind of deeper questions about, um, is it true that in order to be worthy of a life of dignity, you have to have a full-time wage labor job? Um, and one example in terms of examples we give our students, one thing, one example I give my students is like, you know, we venerate, like you have to work to be a good citizen, but people who own investments that pay them passive income, that's not doing work in the traditional sense. And yet that seems to be, you know, an okay access to citizenship and dignity. So I think we need to start asking these questions about um, about work that are go deeper than that accounting framework of like how many jobs is each kind of fuel providing us because it, that feels a bit like a dead end to me politically. Yeah, well, I would I I, I completely agree with that. The, the last point for sure, um, you know, the 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 green jobs arguments, um, I think are, they're playing on the wrong terrain, um, uh, for, for good politics. And then, and the, and certainly a, a, a broader question about the role of work, uh, in our, in our society and in our lives is, uh, is desperately needed. And, um, you know, thank you very much for your, uh, for your contribution in, um, in informing that important conversation. So thanks, very much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was a really super interesting conversation, Kara. Thank you. It was my pleasure.